so just to let you know, yes. Chinook is a separate language, and Chinook jargon took a lot of loan words from uh, Chinook, but it was spoken from Northern California up through the Yukon territories. Wow. Before, uh, there's some more, more and more evidence showing that it was spoken be- before uh, European uh, inter- interactions. Okay. So it was, it's a trade language that uh, was in use for probably 200 years, at least, if not longer. It has Fr- French and English words in it um, and some loan words from the Nootka on Vancouver mm-hmm. Island all the way down to the Chinook in the Columbia River. Hey, this is Brian Atkinson. Welcome to the Park Rose Life podcast, episode number seven. This week, I am back on the other side of the microphone. Hopefully, you got a chance to listen to the show we did where Mr. Andrew Morgan, the producer of our show, interviewed me and my history with Park Rose. You might remember a few weeks ago, we talked to Joe Rossi, and he gave us the history of Park Rose in the early 1900s. Well, this week, we're actually going to go even further back into the heart of Park Rose history, the 1800s and before the indigenous people who are part of Portland and what's now known as Portland in our surrounding region. I'm chatting with Tracy Prince. She's a scholar at the at Portland State University, and she does a lot of community education. She's working with Portland Public Schools, Oregon Humanities, getting around throughout our state, talking about indigenous history, great women in the history of our state. She's very accessible and fun person to learn from. I'm so glad she agreed to become a guest on our show. Without further ado, I want to welcome Tracy Prince. Tracy Prince, (laughs) welcome to the Park Rose Life podcast. Thanks for having me. This is so fun. Yes. Thank you for joining us on short notice and reconnecting with me after all these years. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your interest in studying indigenous people and indigenous history of this area? So my first book was on my neighborhood, which is in Goose Hollow, which is right on the other side of downtown on the west side. And as I researched that book, um, I was using as a resource the the uh, digitized newspapers from the um, uh, University of Oregon. It's all it's available online for free to anyone. Um, and I literally searched for every mention of Chinese because they were known to be vast Chinese vegetable gardens in Goose Hollow that I wanted to really tell that story about. As I'm researching for the Chinese story, I come across mentions of native people living in the same gulch. Goose Hollow is was the the gulch where Tanner Creek ran. It's all been piped underground now. But when you go to a Timbers, the, a game for the Timbers or the Thorns, you are sitting in the natural amphitheater carved out by Tanner Creek, where, where Goose Hollow got its name. So as I found my first mention in the digitized Oregonian historic um, newspapers, it talked about native people living in the gulch right next to the Chinese vegetable gardeners. And I was stunned. So then I started literally reading every mention of uh, Indian or any other racist term I can think of because I knew they wouldn't, you know, they would be using terms we would not approve of today. 
in the Oregonians. I've read every mention from the 1840s to about the 1880s. And in that, it was stunning. I came across so many things that Portlanders just do not know about their own city. We were multicultural from the beginning. I like to tell people that the um, a pioneer recalled in 1850 in Portland, we were incorporated in 1851, that a pioneer said that Native people outnumbered the pioneers, which included Chinese and black pioneers as well, um, four to one. There were a thousand Native people in Portland, which at that time was only the inner west side of the river, and 275 um, other, other, other residents. The very first photograph taken of Portland on Front Street has a Chinese laundry in the picture and a mercantile uh, store from a black pioneer. So I, I'm really working hard to try to dig in and understand that much more diverse picture of history than we are taught. I'm currently working with Portland schools, Portland public schools to try to change um, the curriculum to teach kids what that story is. Wow, that's great. I want to get into that later of how your current research can influence education and the social policies that we create and all of that stuff that comes out of research that you've done that without doing the research, we would never have. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting you put that into context because when I hear a thousand indigenous people, a thousand Native American people, that doesn't sound like a lot. But when you consider it's only one small section of what we now think of as Portland, mm -hmm. it wasn't all of today's Portland. It was literally from Linton to South Waterfront and only to the West Hills that we think of. That's what was original platted part of Portland was. So that's what the pioneer was talking about. And so he identified that there were about 500 native people who were near Cooch Lake, which would be covering what is now the Pearl District, Old Town, Chinatown. And another 500 people uh, at, at the foot of Jefferson, which Jeff at the foot of Jefferson, where it meets the Willamette River is, was where the clearing was, what the people called the clearing. So from there down to what is now South Waterfront were another 500 folks. And they were probably not here originally. Some of them might have been, but they were probably drawn from many different places to come for the trade opportunities. Okay, so let's think about, yeah, originally, and especially thinking out east of the Willamette exactly. River. Exactly. Uh -huh. Tell me if I'm wrong. I've read there were three groups of Chinookan speaking people mm -hmm. in the Portland area, and that's the Multnomah uh -huh. and the Cascades and the Clackamas. Yes. So what band would be in this area? Mostly the Cascade. And so around the Park Rose neighborhood, especially as you get sort of next to the Portland airport, um, there were longhouses for the Cascade Chinook speaking people. So people get that confused with the Chinook nation who that's currently working towards federal recognition. But the Chinook Nation was one of many bands of Chinook-speaking people up and down the Columbia River. And so this area would have had a very um, strong relationship with the Cascade Band, sometimes called the Watlata. Um, I was going to ask if you could explain how they got a ca Cascade Band that sounds like an English word. It was the English word referring to their longstanding relationship with further down the Willamette River. So they had um, 
different villages up and down the area. But um, there would also be lots and lots of trade and cross river things happening with Fort Vancouver across the river from here. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. And I think it's something that a lot of people have gained an interest in knowing lately with Native American History Month. People are encouraged to learn what's what are the names of the people who lived on your land before you. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit more what you touched on of the there's the Chinook Nation that's kind of based more in Astoria area, mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily the same as the Multnomah or the Clackamas Band. Could you give me a better understanding of how those groups related to each other sort of on like a political level. It wasn't necessarily one cohesive tribe. Is that so am that's, I on the right track? So the, the folks from the Grand Ron will emphasize this. I've heard them emphasize this in interviews that the Chinook speaking people weren't necessarily treated as one cohesive tribal group. And of course, because of intermarriage, among many different tribes, they would have had tribal relationships all up and down the river with um, wives speaking, um, you know, Kalapuya and Malala in the Willamette Valley. Those were the uh, major tribes that um, were also had parts in Portland. So um, in native tribes, they were themselves quite multicultural in how vast their uh marriage connections went. Um, and that would be certainly true up and down the Columbia River where the Chinook speaking people were. So they um, started um, in what is now um, Northern Oregon um, and then went down the Columbia River all the way to the Columbia Gorge. People were speaking Chinook. And so they would have had uh, family relationships, but though probably acting much more independently of each other. So for example, the Wasco in the Columbia Gorge may not uh, be acting in complete lockstep with what is now called the Chinook Nation, which was further up the Columbia. So if I look at a map of native tribes in Oregon, would it be more accurate to think of the boundaries as language barriers than political barriers? Some tribes are language and sometimes are, are political. So it just depends on each tribe. So there were so many languages in, in Oregon, what is now Oregon, that you could travel what is now a 30 minute car trip and you could come across completely unintelligible languages to the one you just left. People had to learn many languages. And for that reason, Chinook jargon was um, extremely um, well used in what is now Oregon. That sounds difficult. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> impressive. People were multilingual all over the place. And so uh, the Chinook jargon had about 500 words. Um, it uh, had many loan words from the Chinook speaking people. That's why it was called the Chinook jargon or the native people called it Chinook Wawa. Um, it was spoken from Northern California to the Yukon territories all the way up through tribes in Canada. It was so pervasive and it had some French loan words, some English loan words, 
And to be a pioneer in Portland up until about the 1870s, you could not have functioned without speaking Chinook jargon. Everybody spoke it. Even up until 1910, they had the Oregon Pioneer Association meetings conducted entirely in Chinook jargon. It was their way of proving their sort of pioneer cred, like we got out here before your family got out here. <laughs> but I also like that they were proud of it. They were very proud of it. It's a, a deep part of Oregon history that I've interviewed some old pioneer families they're still using some Chinook jargon words in their families. So if you've ever heard the word muckety-muck, uh, it's also can, can be pronounced muckamuck. That is the chief with the most food, which would make him the richest because he had the most um, uh, things to trade. And uh, today we might use it as, you know, like the muckety-mucks on the West Hills. <laughs> so we might be saying... You know, people who are a little too impressed with their <laughs> with their wealth. So it's interesting that history actually influenced our popular culture in ways that originally people would have understood, but today, for the most part, people have lost that understanding of where that those term, terms came from. Yes. You said there were plank houses near what's now the airport. Do you suppose there would have been people living? further south, like say, you know, cause the airport's right next to the river. Mm -hmm. So I think people tended to put their houses near the Columbia river. Mm -hmm. What about three or four miles south? Would that be more of like a hunting area or would people maybe put, have plank houses here as well? So sometimes that's harder to, to figure out. Um, I would guess, yes, they would have plank houses. Um, uh, but some, unless Lewis and Clark or someone else came by and sketched it, and Lewis and Clark's maps are quite stunning because um, if you look at the maps they drew uh, in and around Portland, they actually put a little triangle on the map to indicate everywhere there was a native um, home site of some even small, more temporary um, home sites or a very large plank house. Um, and there are tons of them along the Columbia River. On Sovie Island, my goodness, they're just lining almost every edge of the water. It's, uh, it was called Wapato Island at that point. Uh, a, a food item that was um, gathered there in the wetlands and was somewhat like a potato and was used as a trade item for tribes in the region. And did people live in their plank houses year round in this region or were they a little nomadic? So every tribe in Oregon was seasonally nomadic. So um, they would have more permanent um, homelands, but then they would were quite expert at taking along um, temporary shelters, um, creating a temporary shelter by taking a big branches, putting them almost in a, a rounded shape or a teepee shape, and then laying over woven mats. Um, woven out of the, the materials at hand um, by cedar bark or or um, grasses. Um, and that would protect them for staying in a, a spot for two or three months because the salmon were running, because the, um, uh, the camas was ready to be harvested, another route that they relied upon. Uh, because the Wapato, they, you know, there was a trail coming down the West Hills of the Tualatin people who were a tribe of a band of the Kalapuya where they came down to Sovie Island all the time to harvest when the Wapato was ready to be harvested. 
So everybody's moving as grasses and bark and other things need to be harvested to create a, a, a like a skirt like thing or um, a cape uh, to keep them uh, pretty warm and dry in the in the rain or to or to weave hats or baskets. Um, so whether collecting for medicinal purposes or weaving purposes or gathering food, they were the tribes were seasonally nomadic. Has there been any archaeological or other historical research that's turned up more information or artifacts east of 82nd or even into East Multnomah County? Has there been any research done in the last couple of decades out this way? So there, there are um, some, it's not written about as much. Um, most people are focused more on, so the massive archaeological digs were at the Cathalpodal Plank House on the other side of the river. Frankly, um, you know, if the Portland airport were being built today, they should have done a, a lot of archaeological digs before they paved it over. Um, so I have a feeling that uh, there's there's a lot out there that we just haven't um, gotten to. Um, but people are more and more interested in it and tribes are paying more and more attention to it. And it's it's encouraging, but there's still much more to do. How do you feel as a historian about how difficult it is to get that kind of information or to make that, to complete that type of research? So I'm not an archeologist. So um, I study um, the moment that native and um, pioneer interactions from the moments of the Oregon Trail onward. I want to understand because the stories I've seen my children taught in public schools are a manifest destiny version of history. That means that the, when you start with the pioneers as if nothing happened before that, you're really whitewashing history and, and not being truthful because there were 10,000 years of history before that. And also native people didn't just disappear from the moment pioneers arrived. Um, I wanted to try to find that story of what is happening as the close interactions, so close. So for example, Terwilliger was a early Portland pioneer family. If you're stuck on the Terwilliger curves and traffic then uh, in the Terwilliger um, uh, Boulevard, um, that's where around where their land claim was. So the Terwilliger children wrote later of their memories of growing up, you know, on the frontier in, uh, when Portland had so few people in it. They had no white children living near them. Their only playmates were native children. So think about that, about like right down from OHSU that there's only native children living near this, you know, pioneer family. It was so um, uh, typical, their story. They spoke Chinook jargon better than English when they were growing wow. up. So to me, I'm always digging for those stories that give me a little glimpse into the continuing relationship and the continuing presence of Oregon tribes in the region and to find stories of even up until 1930, Native people would return from the, the tribal reservations they had been forced onto. So let's Grand Ron, all many different tribe, tribal groups would come into Portland for two or three months, seasonal encampments, selling the baskets the women had made during the winter, huckleberries they had picked, men selling uh, the 
uh, salmon they had fished. It was a ongoing, continuing relationship. Um, and so my my goal is to try to put that story back into Portland's understanding of itself, because uh, along the way, the historians didn't write about the things they found unimportant. They did not find Chinese vegetable gardens that important to mention. They didn't find the continuing relationship and ongoing presence of Native people important. To me, I'm so drawn to that story. So um, it isn't, it's it's really not introducing Portland back to its own diverse history. <laughs> so. I want to ask about forced removal. Mm -hmm. so you've talked about that a few times, and you've also talked about how many indigenous people there were in the Portland area in the mid and early 1800s. Mm -hmm. So was there forced removal of native peoples in this Portland region? And what were the details? Did they all go to one specific reservation or several or? Right, so every tribe in, in the state had a forced removal. Some were more violent than others. In Yahats, for example, there's there was a small Indian agency there, and the Indian agent wrote in his journals about his his uh, feeling of being just heartbroken over a, a woman who was called Amanda, who was forcibly removed from her white husband and mixed race children, and forced marched along with her tribes up the coast to the Indian agency, and that there was about a mile of bloody footprints. Goodness, so that. Yahat's community has commemorated this with a statue and a, a, a trail to to honor Amanda's memory. So in other places, um, there would be an, an advertisement in the newspaper or a notice in the newspaper saying the tribes of the Willamette Valley had been treated with and their lands purchased and they will be removed to their reservations, you know, such and such. So every group of people were forcibly removed from their lands. The people in Portland were removed mostly to the Grand Ronde and the Solettes tribes. Both of those have um, tribe people from 27 different tribal groups that make up who we think of as the Solettes and Grand Ronde today. From Northern Cal tribes that were historically from Northern California to Southern Washington. They spoke many different languages and some were, you know, traditionally enemies with each other. And mm -hmm. so it was quite an upheaval of culture. And um, for both the, of them, especially for the Grand Ron, the Chinook jargon became a way of daily communication. And the Grand Ron has done just fantastic work uh, teaching, uh, putting out a, a Chinook Wawa dictionary and uh, teaching that um, to anyone who wants to learn. So I'm trying to get my head around the forced removal and then the consistent population. Mm -hmm. So were the people who were here through the 1800s, people who had left reservation? I mean, a reservation is more like a prison camp, at least in its original form. So there, there are times in Oregon history where, you know, they're literally saying they're, the Indian agents are being instructed, I want you to create a census of all native people 
in your area, in your reservation. And I want you to check that they're there frequently. And sometimes it was more locked down and other times there was just much more of the time there was more um, travel and um, interactions, uh, seasonal movements, just like the tribes were used to. Um, so it, it wasn't as uh, complete of a removal as people imagine because there were the, the trade relationships remained. The, um, the tribes found ways to advocate for themselves and to, to do the trade and to honor their historic burial, burial grounds. There's stories on Sobe Island of farmers who knew that these were traditional um, Tualatin burial grounds and that they the tribes returned over and over again to honor their people's memories. Let's bring it back a little bit more local because I know that you brought something today with an anecdote about Rocky Butte. Yeah. So um, Rocky Butte was known before. Uh, there's an interview I have with the Oregon Historical Society uh, with someone that um, people called Old John. Um, he was said to be the son of Chief Casino. And he explained to the Oregon Historical Society in an interview that Rocky Butte was the hunting ground for local tribes. And I'll read you from the article I brought. But back before the days of the white man, the old Butte was a favorite hunting ground of the then powerful Indian tribes. Um, the Chinook jargon name for Rocky Butte revealed in a letter to the head of the Oregon Historical Society was Mauwich Alehi, which translated literally means home of the deer. The presence of deer pits on the eastern slopes of the Butte would tend to confirm this characterization. So it's just so cool to me to, to see that story um, and to understand the hundreds, if not thousands of years of history that that represents. That's a really interesting anecdote. And I hope that we can do something to rename and give the Rocky Butte area some kind of rebrand with, with its original name and original history. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be awesome. <laughs> I'll add it to my to-do list. And it's super, it, it's fun to hear those kind of really specific place stories. We had Joe Rossi on the show a few episodes ago, and he talked about his family trading horses at Johnson Lake, which is just north of Sandy Boulevard a little mm -hmm. bit. And that would have been the early 1900s. Wow. And he described that the indigenous people they were trading with at that time, at least those specific people were living in dire poverty, but that was not so much how people were living here before contact. Can, before contact, right? the, yes, this was a place of, of massive uh, trade. It was, the, the tribes here were quite wealthy in their trade items. Um, so when you think about trade, uh, you will have the most ability to trade if you are near a consistent food source or um, other trade items like the, the tribes on the west coast of Vancouver Island that's where the dentalium shells that you, the long white shells that you see in historic pictures of native people in Oregon. Well, they traded for those, those grow um, on the West coast of Vancouver Island. So you can see that those trade items going up and down the coast. So the people here, the Chinook people, the Kalapuya, the Malala, um, 
they were um, incredibly wealthy in salmon, which the women would pound into kind of dried wafers that could be stored for months. Wapato, they did the same thing. Camas, um, they would make the Chinook canoes and trade them. Those Chinook canoes were found all up and down the coast, the other tribes having traded for them. Um, And then you see the trade items coming into this region, but this was a place, a confluence of massive trade from the um, Columbia River rapids, um, Celilo Falls was an incredible place of, of international trade. And then the Willamette Falls on the Willamette River. Um, they drew a lot of uh, other tribes from various regions. Um, someone talked to me about creating a land acknowledgement and they wanted to list all the tribes that traded here as well as had their homelands here. And I said, well, you'd have to start listing tribes from Northern California to Canada then because that's who's trading here. Yes. So um, it was, it was, um, uh, the tribes here lived uh, perhaps easier lives because they were surrounded by the abundance that we appreciate still to this day. You know, if you, if you wander through the forest, you will come across salal berries and huckleberries and thimble berries and salmon berries there's a there's an abundance of the earth that is still here today then that we still um, enjoy I, I like that theme you're tracing from the abundance and the all of the plant life that's here. Mm-hmm. Do you track any other themes culturally that existed in their society that we have today, or what are some cultural differences you might highlight, if not themes? Um, I'm not. That's a little harder uh, because it would be the tribes who carry those cultural um, themes, and not necessarily uh, other folks outside the tribes. Um, so I have seen um, uh, indigenously marked tree is um, what um, people call that, where um, a woman would go into the forest and um, take a make a gash in a cedar tree and then pull a strip of that cedar bark off. And sh- she would only pull one long strip, just pull as hard as she can. So you might get like a 20 foot strip of cedar bark that that pulls off the tree and then folds it up and can pack out quite a lot out of the forest to go then weave baskets or capes with that. Um, so to me, it was just um, an inc- almost a spiritual moment, honestly, to stand at the tree and to see this deep gash that was probably 150, 200 years old. Wow. Um, so the story is still out there. Um, tribal groups who people who are members of the Grand Ron and the Solettes, whose lineage connects to the Chinook-speaking people in the Tualatin, the Kalapuya, the Malala, who were in this region, are um, creating art that um, is, and the Chinook Nation, people from who have connections to the Chinook Nation, their art is re- really recalling some of the 
um, pieces I've seen on stone carvings that were uncovered at Sovie Island and other places. So for example, at the Portland Art Museum, there is um, about a three foot high stone carving that was found on the Columbia River. Um, it has very distinct uh, rib cage showing. Uh, the ribs are quite clear. What the meaning of that is less known, you know, is it to indicate starvation? Is it a funeral marker? But this was a very, very, very common Chinook style um, artistic expression. And so I was so thrilled to see uh, Greg Robinson and Greg Archuleta in a, a recent, like two, two or three years ago, exhibit at the Portland Art Museum. And their cultural expression carved in wood was replicating that in a, just in a really interesting way. Um, a lot of people have the mistaken idea that Oregon had totem poles. We did not. At the moment of European interaction, we wouldn't have had the kind of totem poles that you imagine that Alaska tribes and British Columbia tribes did have. Um, but they did have robust carvings in wood and painted on wood and carved into stone and petroglyphs. It's just a different iconography than what uh, people imagine. That's really interesting. And you you noted earlier some of the, the values of nature and of kind of protecting what's there and making use of it. And for you, that was, I guess, seeing it in person was sort of a spiritual experience. And that made me think of asking you about spiritual beliefs mm -hmm. of the tribes. Is that something that you're very familiar with? I, you know, I'd rather have the tribes speak okay. to that. Cause I, I just, you know, I'm a historian and I'm not, you know, speaking on behalf of, of the tribes, but you know, the um, Chinook nation often ho holds ceremonies. They have, they often uh, use the Catholic longhouse that's in Ridgefield, Washington. If you haven't been there, it's just amazing. And so they often invite the public to join them on um, ceremonies to honor the return of the salmon and that sort of thing. But um, I've been to many ceremonies where um, Ch Chinook Nation folks are saying a prayer, singing a prayer and um, the, talking about their connection to the earth and to the abundance that um, is given from the earth and their gratitude for it. A lot of the tribes in Oregon will have a first salmon ceremony. It's different in every tribe, but they might do something like return the bones of the first salmon that was caught yes. back to the ocean. And, you know, it's a way to connect yourself, really root yourself into the earth, into that land that has given you that abundance. It's a really fun and thought-provoking experience. I had an opportunity to be part of the Chinook tribe's first salmon ceremony a number wow. of years ago, and I felt honored to be present for it. And it seemed like such a significant moment that, at least in my conception or the kind of popular culture's conception of native tribes, that something like that is going on today. Mm -hmm. And then there are a lot of tribes throughout the nation, there's over, over 500 tribes in the United States. Every tribe has a different experience and cultural tradition and artistic expression. But a lot of tribes um, practice, you know, smudge ceremonies, drumming ceremonies, and that uh, these bring um, a contemplativeness, a reminder to look to the ancestors and to honor their memories. 
So I want to bring the conversation back to something that you talked about a little bit in your work with Portland Public Schools mm -hmm. and the role of history and how that relates to contemporary social values. Social values have shifted a significant amount mm -hmm. since the time period that we're talking about in the 1800s or 1900s. Do you ever feel like it's difficult to, maybe not difficult, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, do you think that our social values today still influence what history is emphasized or de-emphasized in what stories we tell about Native people? Yeah, it's it was very important to me because as my kids went through Portland Public Schools and they were given an art um, project to do and they were told to create totem poles and paper mache masks that look like a raven or something that is typical in British Columbia, Alaska, I talked to the teachers and it was clear that they had no concept that this had nothing to do with Oregon's native people. So the more, and then I traveled the state giving talks for Oregon humanities and honestly, people just don't know. They're not malicious. They just don't know. So we just have to do work of teaching that story and getting the images in front of people. Um, so in all of my books, my most recent is um, Notable Women of Portland, which I co-authored with my daughter, Zadie Schaefer. And I packed as much Native story into that book as I possibly could because um, I'm not quite ready to, to write the Native American history of early Portland book, which will be a future book. Um, I'm doing my best to try to get these images in front of folks to understand that this is, um, we just need to, a reset. Um, so then I contacted Portland Public Schools um, uh, Director of Multicultural Education and said, hey, I'd love for you to take a look at our recent notable uh, uh, Women of Portland book so you could maybe think differently about it. And that has led to some conversations about, hey, we're thinking of rewriting a third grade curriculum. Would you like to be involved? And I'm like, oh, yes. What a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah. So for me, you know, most people don't realize that when you write a local history book, uh, you make about a dollar a book and you could make better money working at McDonald's, to be honest. It's not for the money. It's for my passionate desire to to take this history that I've stumbled across in my research and to get people to understand that the diverse, fascinating history, every person I've ever given talks to, and I give talks for Oregon Historical Society, Multnomah County Libraries, et cetera, they're overjoyed to hear this. They want to learn more. And so just trying to get that out there to um, the people of Portland who really want to know this much more diverse history. There's a, for right now a plaque is being uh, created by the Old Lang Syne Society to honor the first black pioneer of Portland or one of the first. Um, uh, it, it's there's movements to tell more of these stories that were, you know, when the first historians wrote, they wrote about the people that the places were named after the streets were named after mostly white men. And so. The stories of working class people were left out. The stories of women, the stories of diverse peoples were just not included. And then the next historian just quoted the one that came before. And so in a very short time, you've got a whitewashed version of history. And I know people of Portland want to see the real story. And that's what I'm working. I, I can't work fast enough to get it out there. <laughs> so. Wow. So how many, how, how many years have you been working on your next book? So I'm working on actually what has delayed. So I will be writing a Native American 
history of early Portland and a Chinese vegetable gardens of probably the entire West Coast. Those are up ahead. Keeps getting bigger in the scope. Yes, because I keep finding more. Mm -hmm. So the more I look for Chinese vegetable gardens, the more they, they turn up as a quintessential Chinese American immigrant experience. So I want to not put the books out until I can feel like I can tell the whole story and not shortchange it. In the meantime, I'm working on a book uh, called Might Ought to Keep Singing. It's a narrative nonfiction uh, memoir-like book about uh, growing up from uh, sharecroppers in the South, in Arkansas, that's where I'm from, and uh, to have been uh, influenced by the music that they sang in the cotton fields. That's what I was taught growing up. Everybody around me would just jump in and start harmonizing. It was what we did for fun. Um, and then along the way, discovering my, um, I was raised uh, with everyone just assuming that we were all white, but discovering that I have African and I always knew I had native ancestors, but um, it wasn't really talked about that much. So it's very personal story that um, really is about the history of the music from the cotton fields and the oppression of black and white sharecroppers and how that turned into the expression of joy. Wow. So, That's a lot to look forward to. Yeah. So that has, has my heart and that has held up some of the Portland books, but it's, that's, that's gotta be written. It's, it really, I went to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. and listened to folk recordings made in the region in the 1930s. It was amazing. That's so many good things. So <laughs> as I'm listening to you, I can hear your passion for so many different topics. And you're <laughs> someone who makes them readily available. I like that you aren't in an ivory tower only publishing works that someone with a PhD could understand to read, but a lot of your works are readily available, easy to read and fun. Mm -hmm. You're working on education for third graders uh -huh. in your work. So I'll be sure on, if you're listening to this podcast on a podcast player like Spotify, be sure to go to parkroselife.com because I'm going to link to Tracy's works and some of the places we've mentioned like Catholipotal and you also mentioned a couple guys named George worked on an art exhibit I want to link to as well. Yes, the uh, George, our, our, Greg Robinson Greg. and Archuleta. Mm -hmm. So let's end there and I'm going to segue us into our rapid fire questions. So Tracy, what is your favorite food place in the region? It's Cargi Gogo on Alberta, but it is closing, unfortunately, because of what's going through. It is a Georgian restaurant from the country of Georgia. It's insanely good food. Wow. I hope they're able to make a new go of it. What's your favorite place to be outside? It's not in it's not in Portland. It's in Vancouver. It's the Renaissance Walk that goes from kind of where the McMinimans is along the Columbia River, and there, a gorgeous Wendy the Welder statue at one end, and a Native American woman statue, and you can walk all the way towards the downtown revitalized Vancouver. It's a beautiful walk along the Columbia River. What's your favorite community event that you've got to be part of? I put on um, the Goose Hollow Street Festival every year, my neighborhood. And it's really fun to run into neighbors and to really have a community minded neighborhood thing that promotes our local businesses and uh, gets people involved in the neighborhood association. 
Woohoo. Where can people follow you online and so, find you? Yes. So I have a Facebook author page where I do most of my social media engagement. It's Tracy J. Prince, PhD. That'll get you to uh, on Facebook. Um, uh, an Instagram account of the same, um, Tracy J. Prince, um, PhD, and then Twitter, Tracy J. Prince. So um, I mostly uh, talk about what research I'm coming across. Uh, I share information like when I found my first um, enslaved ancestor, the record of the moment of their emancipation was so heart moving to me. And, you know, I try to post some things that kind of bring you along with my, where my research is going. Wow. That is pretty moving research. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Well, Tracy J. Prince, PhD. <laughs> thank you for joining us on the Park Rose Life. I appreciate it. Thank you for all you do for the community. Wow, that was so fun to talk to Tracy. She is a wealth of knowledge. She has so much to bring to the table. She knows so much more than is written or is easily accessible about indigenous history in our area. So I was, felt like I learned so much in that short conversation. We're looking forward to 2021. Hopefully we have better things in store. There's more stories we want to tell about multicultural people in Park Rose. If you know anyone who would like to talk to us about the Slavic community or the Vietnamese community, we're reaching out to people who are involved in the business community in Park Rose and Gateway. We want to fill our calendar for Park Rose Life podcast in 2021. So if you or someone you know want to come on the show, be sure to get in touch with us. I'm Brian Atkinson. This is Park Rose Life. Park Rose Life.